0: Welcome to America Can Talk. I'm Debbie Georgias, and welcome to our very, very special Thursday show. As you know, in our Thursday shows, we focus on one guest. We have an in-depth discussion, and you may be guessing from my background that I'm not actually in the studio in Dallas, Texas. We're actually out in California, and in this um, time in California, we just could not resist the opportunity. We had a great chance to talk with uh, the author of January 6th, Julie Kelly. Her book is called January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to launch a war on terror against the political right. I will tell you that I always try, if I have an author on my show, I always try to read the book. I brought the book out here. We are in California vacation. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be hard to get through. It was not. It is the really, really interesting reading, fast reading, so substantive. And honestly, the reason I was so interested in having Julie Kelly on is because I think this incident on January 6th of 2021, It is going to be in the history books, and and for really centuries to come, people looking back on the formation, the development of America, and it is vital that people in the future and people today really get a handle on what actually happened. Not the media spin, not the January 6th commission spin, but all of these very consequential factors that shaped what occurred on January 6th what the Jeremy Assist Commission is doing today and the impact of those events on the lives of many, many Americans. One of the great things Julie Kelly mm-hmm. does in this book, besides giving history and um, and uh, give, giving the history of the uh, incident, is she runs through the stories of people's lives. I mean, truly people's lives who were, were forever changed by that incident on January 6th uh, in Washington, D.C. I, I was not there, but I'll tell you, my husband and I were there for the November 14th rally. That was a very positive rally, very upbeat. And we talked a little bit about going to the January 6th rally and, and did not go, but people's lives were changed, not necessarily because they did something so bad, but because of the way this incident has been handled by the um, people involved in Washington, the Capitol Police, the uh, a lot of players will talk about. I think this is vital reading and actually it's vital reading for people who may not be on the conservative side, who may be really um, very down on the January 6th day, have them understand all the factors that were in play that day. So with that lengthy introduction, I wanna welcome to the show, Julie Kelly. Hi, Julie.
1: Hey, Debbie, thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it and appreciate your covering my work.
0: Oh, your work, and by the way, I meant to say Julie Kelly writes at American Greatness, and American Greatness is one of those really, uh, substantive websites. When you go there, every author, every person who writes there, they're not just um, short little um, summaries of incense. They go in depth and explain uh, w- it, the many important things happening in America today. So Julie Kelly writes there. And I'm just going to start with the January 16th. We uh, talked, I guess, via text or email before we uh, got together today about the idea that When people got to Washington on January 6th, when they got there that day, it wasn't like they got there to hear President Trump um, and before that had no concerns about the legitimacy of the 2020 election. They, in fact, were fully aware. So I just want to talk about that to start with the mindset of many people as they arrived in Washington on January 6th. They knew a lot of things already about the November 2020 election. It didn't seem right. I'd love to have you start with that. (laughs) It's
1: such an important question uh, that people ask, is what motivated people, really hundreds of thousands of Americans, to go to the Capitol on January 6th? For a lot of people, including some people I've interviewed, it was their first time they had ever gone to Washington, D.C. I think it was a number of factors. Number one, there were people who really did think something was going to happen that day, that Mike Pence might uh, halt the certification of certain states. Uh, They also thought that uh, Senate Republicans and House Republicans would be successful in asking for this 10-day audit in these contested states, which... That's what Republicans were planning to do, and quite frankly, Debbie, that is why Democrats, not Republicans, wanted the business, uh, congressional business of that day halted because they were going to have 12 hours of the American people's attention to go through all of the election fraud allegations in each state. Um, And so I think that some people thought something really meaningful was going to happen. I think there were others who showed up just to support the president sort of knowing this would be his last hurrah, that it was unlikely anything was going to change that day, wanted to show their support, wanted to hear him speak publicly as a president for the last time. And I think to your point, just a sense of camaraderie. Of course, they are had been stopped the Steel rallies or Save America rallies in November and December in Washington, D.C. And so I think that people just really wanted to show their support for the president and also to demonstrate their objections to what was a rigged, unlawful presidential election. So there was a confluence of factors, I think, for why so many people showed up that day.
0: That's a great answer and very insightful. There wasn't um a monolithic thought process. People came from different directions. Um, one thing I was I was looking up in preparing for this interview, you know, what did people know by that date? Because since this time, since we had uh, this incident in January 6th, since we've had the Biden administration in office, there's been more and more information developed, more research done about election fraud and the beliefs that the 2020 election was not valid. But going back to that day, because I can remember talking about this in my show, even as of that day, some of the um data points were really were were well known one being the one that i repeated my show several times which was that they have these bellwether counties they have counties that have accurately predicted the outcome of the presidential election meaning whoever takes these 19 counties virtually always wins the presidency so they're called bellwether so in that time in november 2020 of the bellwether counties of 19 of them in the nation 18 of the 19 went for Donald Trump by, on average, 16 points. So mm-hmm. it was, that sounds like a, a landslide. And the one county that appeared to go for Biden uh, went for Biden only by a three-point margin. And that's just one little data point. I don't want to dive into that in the show too much today, except I think that people, I'm a little bit uh, interested in countering the idea that they came to Washington, all of them came just accepting, well, I guess, Biden won, we just want to cheer on Trump, we sure liked him. They were very concerned and they, and they about whether the election was valid, and therefore hoping, as you say, something good would happen on that day in January 6th, that maybe there'd be this, this uh, delay that Senator Cruz and others were urging, uh, w- whether the uh, votes got counted, maybe Vice President Pence would reject some of the states. So there were a lot of people thinking this is our last chance to make something happen. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but thats it wasn't just Trump stirring up people that day for the first time.
1: Right. I think some people saw this as the last stand, the last opportunity. There was also a lot of frustration because everywhere they turned, the Trump campaign turned, to try to get some relief for what happened. They were turned away, including, and I think what really outraged people Is Brett Kavanaugh refusing to hear uh, Attorney General, uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's, I thought very detailed and sober lawsuit that was signed, joined by, I believe, at least 19 other Republican attorney attorneys general and over 100 Republican Congress House members. And so, when someone like Brett Kavanaugh, who all of us fought so hard for, and especially Donald Trump. It was just seen as a stab in the back. And of course, Brett Kavanaugh did that on a number of occasions related to lawsuits, not just brought by the Trump campaign, but also Pennsylvania officials and Michigan officials and Wisconsin officials. He absolutely rejected uh, and sided with John Roberts and the leftists on the court to refuse to even consider those lawsuits. Also, there was a lot of outrage at Attorney General Bill Barr, who a lot of us saw early on as a hero. We thought he would finally come in halfway uh, through Trump's term, this Justice Department that is so corrupt and um, was so adamant about taking down Donald Trump. And Bill Barr said all the right things, really thought we would get to the bottom of Russiagate, finally have some people held accountable. But when he went to the Associated Press on December 1st of 2020, before even notifying the White House that his uh, Justice Department found no evidence of widespread election fraud, without even giving proper investigative tools to these numerous states where we know that they broke the law. Uh, this was just a fueling so much outrage and frustration and quite frankly desperation. And so that is why I think a lot of people want January 6 to see hopefully, I mean, I think the Mike Pence move was was a misfire by Donald Trump. He should never have entrusted or thought for a minute that Mike Pence would do anything. Um, but I do think that the senators and, Repul- and House members who were coming together, and of course the joint session was adjourned when Ted Cruz and Paul Gosar were talking about uh, uh, what was ha- what had happened in-, in Paul Gosar's home state of Arizona, that is when they adjourned or recessed, and uh, allegedly because of the-, the demonstrators coming into the building. So, um, but the Democrats got their way that day. You know, the the lie is that Republicans wanted and Trump wanted the business of that day stopped. That's not true. It's the Democrats who wanted it stopped. They did not want those audits to move forward. And at the end of the day, that is exactly what happened. Senators who were going to support it pulled their support pulled their support because of the riot. And uh, of course, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were certified around three thirty in the morning on January seventh
0: such excellent points. Before we dive into your book, I I have so many things. I I messaged you early saying, I think we need six hours, which we don't have. But I want to mention one thing about your book that I meant to say in introducing you. You have a summary of it at the head of your Twitter handle, which uh, says, um, in 90,000 words, I carefully expose every lie related to January 6th. I cover the cover-ups, including 14,000 hours of security video and witness accounts of police misconduct. I tell some of the many stories of lives destroyed and ended by that event. It's a great summary of your book. And again, your book is called January 6th. I also want to commend you uh, just for your dedication, dedicated to everyone who still knows America is worth fighting for and to the political prisoners. Just just so profound, so good. Okay, so among the things you did in your book, which I really appreciate because I think that, you know, there's a lot of surface-level argument on politically people. January 6th was an insurrection, it was a riot, or other people saying, no, it was a very thoughtful... Um, insightful uh, you know uh, a meaningful event you really break down the big arguments and, and address them directly in the various chapters and so I just want to start with you talk about the idea um, that you have you have a great timeline uh, also but you talk about the idea uh, the myth of an arms insurrection and this is first of all if you address briefly the idea why that isn't uh, a myth to call an armed insurrection and then I want to talk about the idea of the choice of the word insurrection had political consequence and people knew it from the start. But first, what's so wrong with calling it armed insurrection?
1: Because no one was charged or arrested for carrying a firearm into the Capitol that day. Even after all this time, they've arrested a few men who had firearms outside of the building. One man who had them in his truck parked near the Capitol building. Of course, as you know, Debbie, the only person who had a gun and used it that day was Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd, who shot at almost point-blank range in the face Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed female veteran posing no threats to anyone, because, of course, the House chambers had already been evacuated a half hour before Michael Byrd executed Ashley Babbitt. So no one. So the idea it was an armed insurrection, that you had all these Trump supporters with their AR-15s and whatever, heavy weaponry, uh, storming the Capitol, trying to assassinate Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell or whoever. Um, it's just one falsehood about the narrative of January 6th. Um, did people have weapons? Yes. There are about 70 people, 75, charged with some sort of weapons possession, but this is pepper spray. A lot of these people, Debbie, as you know, brought some sort of protective weapon including chemical spray because of what had happened at previous stop the steel rallies in dc we saw videos and you might have seen this yourself in november of 2020 we saw videos of trump supporters being attacked and assaulted confronted and taunted by blm and antifa protesters after the december rally and so a lot of people told me that the reason they brought pepper spray or say a walking stick or a small baton some sort of way to defend themselves, not to go into the Capitol and use it against lawmakers or staff, but to protect themselves as to what a lot of people anticipated a big presence of BLM and Antifa activists that day, which of course there wasn't because who needs BLM and Antifa when you have undercover uh, FBI agents and informants. So, um NDC and, and Capitol Police who are doing the dirty work uh, of uh, left-wing activists. So that is just one part of the folly, the the falsehood uh, of, of January 6th. No one was caught or arrested carrying a firearm into the Capitol building that day.
0: That is such an important point. And I'm going to guess, uh, of course, aside from those who read your book, but there are many, many people who actually do think that's what happened because the way the media portrayed the event, the pictures they chose to depict of the crowd had people thinking, my gosh, it was actually armed people storming the Capitol, and getting inside. And to know that that's not true, you know, I just I, I feel like the media among many players in this entire incident have really been unfair, unfaithful to truth, unfair to the American people in allowing this to continue to be the perception that was an armed insurrection and the january 6th committee is trying to push the idea that it was actually a planned insurrection trying to pull together pieces to point fingers at various people who somehow were engaged in creating this insurrection and what it, you know, it was i i you may choose a different term for it it was definitely a breach of the capital the capital was breached i mean people enter when they weren't in some places where they weren't supposed to um and it turned it, it was a it was a protest that turned a little bit violent in a small number of people it wasn't an insurrection and it was over in whatever it was eight hours or something it Was it was a, four. a half, four hours yeah so it is so important just to correct these really Uh, intentionally chosen um, mislabelings. And then to the point about people using the insurrection term, I have a little clip. Um, Even people on the alleged conservative side of the aisle, I sent Mr. Becker a clip. Uh, This is of uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, minority leader uh, Mitch McConnell, who his little blurb he had to say about the insurrection. And Ziggy Becker, if you are ready, let's quick play that clip. going to run again and i mean that sincerely i had no intention of running for president again and uh until i saw that's, that's those folks coming John let's do the other one if we have the first one, Mitch mcconnell well let me give you my view of what happened january the 6th and we're all we're here we're here we we, we saw what happened it was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. That's what it was. I tell you, Julie Kelly, I find that, I, I mean, I, I don't, on many issues, I do not find Senator Mitch McConnell to be a leader for the conservative cause. He doesn't stand up in many important things. But that is the conservatives capitulating to the left's talking point, that this was an insurrection, and there were, Actually, very few people on the conservative side who were willing to stand up at all. It seemed like even among elected senators, members of the House, they became alarmed and concerned about not wanting to be broad brush painted. And they didn't stand up and say they they weren't willing to put this incident in the proper context and say it wasn't an insurrection. You agree? (laughs)
1: yes i mean shame on mitch mcconnell he's a clown he's a fraud he is a useful idiot tool for the left in the democratic party um i personally was hoping that the senate uh, republicans would lose the senate which they did because uh they are utter failures on every single level because they are led by that man mitch mcconnell now, it's interesting Mitch McConnell wants to talk about a violent insurrection because guess what? Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are the two people responsible for security that day. I, if I had a moment with Mitch McConnell, among many questions, would ask him, why did, you, why did your Sergeant-at-Arms, who serves on the Capitol Police Board along with the House Sergeant-at-Arms, why did they repeatedly rebuff requests by Capitol Police Chief for more assistance that day? What sort of culpability, what sort of complicity, I would say, does Mitch McConnell have in the fact that Capitol was so poorly, allegedly so poorly understaffed and lacked security that day? Mitch McConnell took to the floor on January 6th. He strenuously objected to what Republicans in his conference were going to do. He said repeatedly that Joe Biden was the lawfully elected president, that this was the most egregious thing he had seen in years as his uh, head of the uh, of the Senate, um, really demeaning his Senate colleagues for moving forward with this proposed audit. And, of course, he, too, used the word insurrection that day on January 6th, along with Joe Biden and the news media and George W. Bush and Barack Obama and everyone else who had gotten the talking points way ahead of time. Um, But shame on Mitch McConnell. He doesn't realize what those sort of words fuel and how it impacts the lives of these defendants, such as Matthew Perna, who committed suicide on February 25th of this year, after not just being tormented by this Justice Department, but being a pariah in his own community, being referred to as a traitor, a domestic terrorist, an insurrectionist, thanks in great part to people, inhumane, indecent people like Mitch McConnell and other Republicans who've said the same.
0: I, lo- I love your answer on the subject of the variety of people you mentioned who use the word insurrection. My quick political point is in the Constitution, it is an argument with with respect to language in the Fourteenth Amendment that essentially calling an insurrection gives rise to the argument by some on the left that certain people who in any way enabled or participated in this um, incident on January 6 would not be eligible to run for office again, according, according, you know, at least including of course uh, President Trump, because he's if he's guilty of insurrection he can't under the Fourteenth. They had an argument on the Fourteenth Amendment. I don't want to get off on that, but I, I think it was a deliberately chosen word and repeated by the characters you mentioned. But how, how does it, when you talk about them getting talking points ahead of time, it, meaning they you believe that it was a decision ahead of time to label this incident insurrection, to use it even before the incident happened? Yes,
1: I absolutely do. You know, the word insurrection was floating around throughout 2020. As I write in my book, Um, You know, Donald Trump floated the idea of using the Insurrection Act during the George Floyd riots and deploying the military under the Insurrection Act to bring some law and order to these cities that were under siege by these rioters and murderers, looters, etc. Uh, He was rebuffed uh, and, and talked out of that by people like Bill Barr. There also was a plan, I talk about this in my book, called the Transition Integrity Project. This was a roadmap that was authored by very powerful Democratic interests and never Trumpers like Bill Kristol, who sort of mapped out these four different scenarios of what could happen after the election based on what the results were going to be. And in that document, the word insurrection is used four times. So this was already being planted by these anti-Trump activists in the summer of 2020 on, on, on numerous by, on numerous angles, really. So it's not a coincidence, nothing in Washington, as you know, is a coincidence. So the fact that on the afternoon of January 6th, you had lawmakers and people like Nancy Pelosi's daughter who right away were using the word insurrection or insurrectionist. Joe Biden at four o'clock that day as the chaos is still unfolding on on Capitol Hill, took to, uh, from his home in Delaware, gave a national address and called this an insurrection. The news media repeatedly started describing this as an insurrection. George W. Bush and his wife, Laura, in a statement that was released around 6.30 that day, called it an insurrection. The talking points went out beforehand uh, because I believe this was largely an inside job What happened that day, lack of security, FBI, and other government agency, agents, agent provocateurs from other government agencies, probably political actors as well, um, because they provoked a lot of what happened that day. They knew ahead of time that they were going to be able to call this an insurrection. Maybe they were just going to call the uh, demands for the audit an attempted insurrection, but because of the violence, that they fomented, especially law enforcement officers, under the direction of Nancy Pelosi and Muriel Bowser, the mayor of DC, they, this gave all the fuel that they needed to justify, they think, justify this word insurrection. That's how it got seeded so early. Democrats are geniuses at this. They, They set the narrative so early, by the time the facts come out, it doesn't even matter because you've already brainwashed tens of millions of Americans into believing that's true. So that is how that term insurrection was seeded throughout 2020 and then certainly on January 6, 2021.
0: Uh, Julie Kelly, I'm a thousand percent with you and I'm so glad you are brave enough to say this, write this and speak it because there is a great deal of fear still in our country among conservatives to even speak up in defense of anything about January 6. It's kind of a move along, be it leave it alone, leave it behind us and we're going to go ahead and talk about something else. But putting these facts out there, as you have done, is vital for people to get the correct picture, the correct understanding of what occurred. On the use of the word insurrection, there was one effort to um, to have, I think it was uh, Madison Cawthorn, was, it was someone who's been elected once, mm-hmm. and because he was uh, supportive of some of the objections to sent, uh, on January 6th, of sending some of the Electoral College votes back, there was actually litigation in I'm losing it, South of North Carolina, one of the two, wherever he's from, uh, that basically said he's not eligible to run because he supported the January 6th people. And the court uh, ruled in his favor and said, sorry about that, this is not an insurrection. But I agree that it was was an intentionally chosen word to uh, cause fear, strike fear in the heart, especially of people who don't pay that much attention, and to politically cripple President Trump's future chances of running. I want to turn to another argument. You have a great chapter on it, too. You talk about how much the term White supremacism is pushed around in connection with January 6th, and this is the the left wing go to argument. Every issue, if they can't get their way, they turn to race. They turn to calling people who will not agree with them racists on uh, on a wide variety of topics. But when I first was hearing after January 6th that there were people, Nancy Pelosi made reference to white supremacism being behind this. There is no logic at all to that allegation. But again, the left chooses a term because it stirs people up and you pretty handily dismiss that in your chapter in your book on the argument about white supremacism but the can you just quickly tell us why you so can easily reject white supremacism as the motive for january 6th
1: well i always say so you had a bunch of white trump supporters who were going to overthrow an almost entirely white US Senate, an overwhelmingly majority white House of Representatives to halt the inauguration of another white man, and that was led. They wanted to hang the whitest man on the planet, Mike Pence. I mean, none of this makes any sense, right? I mean, please. D- so not only does it make any sense, it makes no sense, it's actually laughable like, like you just did. It's hilarious if you really think about it. But Debbie, of all the evidence I've seen, encrypted chats where people thought nobody was watching, memes that have been used, things that are collected off of people's personal cell phones, conversations, texts, etc. cetera, there's nothing, absolutely nothing. I haven't even seen the N-word used. Produced by the government against a defendant in service of this white supremacy narrative. There's one man, Timothy Hale, who has been accused. Actually, it's in his charging documents of being a white supremacist. Do you know why? Because they pulled, I mean, memes off of his phone, which I would not have, right? Very derogatory things about blacks, derogatory things about Jews. He wasn't spreading it out there. It was on his phone. That's his business. I mean, it's not a crime to have these memes on your phone. They also, he worked for, he's an Army reservist. He worked for uh, Navy uh, Naval Yard. They, NCIS, not the TV show, the actual agency, went and interviewed four dozen of his coworkers asking him, What they asking them what they thought about Tim Hale's political views, if they'd ever heard him say anything racist, had he ever said anything anti-Semitic. They collected that evidence. They collected those responses and used it as evidence to prosecute him. And not only that, to keep him behind bars where he has been since January of 2021, he turned himself into the FBI. He's been there ever since and his trial isn't even till May. But aside from that, there's no proof that these people were motivated by race at all. There's still no evidence by the government that any of this was motivated by white supremacy. Um, And in fact, I see the same in the Governor Whitmer trial, the trial of the alleged kidnappers, which I've been covering and now is on its fourth day of deliberations. The jury still has no verdict, but the idea was that that was a group of white supremacists too. They have thousands uh, or hundreds of hours of recorded conversations with these defendants. They never talk about race. They never talk about blacks in a derogatory way. They never say anything about whites. None of this was motivated by race. Just another red herring uh, that, that these liars in the government, these liars in the media throw out there to smear innocent people as racists.
0: And uh, to our radio listeners, we just want to say that we will see you again in three minutes. You're listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiades. Thank you, sir, for jumping in. I hope they come right back after three minutes. Okay, so I want to, uh, you know, jump to you're, you're making, there are so many things we could talk about. And I want to turn and talk about, you know, you do a great job in your book of capturing the impact on individuals lives that isn't just a a of people went there and, and then uh some got arrested but the the personal impact in people's lives of what the january 6th commission is doing and i want to start with you make a really good I, I love your characterization of it just that january 6th is being used as a as a means or justification for pretty much a domestic terror assault against political enemies, it's it's being used to say now that we have this behind us and everyone's afraid of us, it is being used as an assault weapon against many many Americans. I mean, the January 6th Commission is—I think you use the word witch hunt in your book—but it is a it is just an all-out effort to uh, gather supporters, to to identify supporters of President Trump, identify supporters who may or may not have supported January 6th and instill and, and fear and instill and the notion that you are a criminal because you were there or because you believe in Donald Trump. It, it is a political witch hunt, uh, really on the parallel of the Russia collusion hoax, witch hunt. I love your comment about that. First of all, I want to jump and talk to some of these individual trials, but your thoughts on that, just overall.
1: Um, right, well, I always say, when the truth about January 6th comes out, Russia collusion will look like a kindergarten play because this is on such a scale, Debbie, that I don't think Americans are fully ready to grasp what our government is capable of doing. And as I said, following the Whitmer trial, you get a little taste of it, um, but they accelerated that plan to produce, to concoct and to present what happened on January 6th. But they are definitely using the weapons of war, domestic, the foreign war on terror, they're turning those tools against Americans on the political right. Now, we see the January 6th committee certainly doing that. We see the Biden regime helping that committee because, of course, for the first time in American history, a sitting U.S. president has denied at least three times executive privilege protections to his predecessor. That has never happened before. And that is exactly why the January 6th committee is coming in possession of of tens of thousands of official presidential records, far in it, far before what's regularly or lawfully allowed under the Presidential Records Act. So, this is why it, the National Archivist, who of course is happy to do this as well, is producing all of these official records to this committee, which is then dutifully leaked out to their cutouts in the media. Of course, they got busted with a big lie last week when the committee allegedly said that uh, seven hours of Trump's uh, phone log on that day was missing. So they gave that to Bob Costa and to Bob Woodward at the Washington Post. And what happened, CNN, to their credit, came out a few days later and said, well, no, it's not that the official, that the, the call logs are missing, it's that at that point, Trump was probably using his cell phone or using the cell phones of others. And it's a very fuzzy area because this Presidential Records Act was." instituted in 1978 of course before cell phones, whether uh, documenting cell phones uh, is, is necessary. So this really covers the calls that were going through the presidential switchboard, which he wasn't using that afternoon. So Washington Post, Bob Woodward has mud mud in their eye. They don't care, right? Because you already have millions of Americans who still believe that seven hours are missing from the official, you know, that Trump committed some crime, uh, but they didn't. So um, this is what is happening. But as far as turning the uh, foreign war on terror and turning it into a domestic one, I'll give you a one little example of how that's being done. Matthew Olson, who is now the uh, Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division, this was the division that was created after 9-11 to sort of coalesce the government's powers uh, to intelligence powers, etc., surveillance powers, law enforcement, investigative powers, to uh, make sure that everybody was working in sync to, to kind of find out these foreign terror threats. Matthew Olson just announced in January that he has opened a domestic terror unit under the National Security Division. Now, he has no legislative authority to do that. But this is just one more example of how they are using these agencies and tools that were created uh, for the first war on terror for the second war on terror, which is against Americans on the political right.
0: Absolutely, it is. I don't know, Juliet, this is to what you are referring, but uh, I talked in my show about the Department of Homeland Security bulletin that came out, I think it was February 7th, early February, in which they said, you may be considered a domestic terrorist if you, and the two subjects you couldn't talk about are, frankly, subjects I'm I'm talking about my show all the time, one being challenging the 2020 election outcome, Mm -hmm. which is just, that—that that is like, that that is a, uh, tyrannical mindset that says now that we have power our citizens can't talk about whether we got it illegally whether whether the election was corrupt so you can't talk about the 2020 elections and the corruption there or you can't question them and you can't talk about covid another huge area of concern among conservatives and the policies Mm -hmm. the government pursued to me that is and this is one point i meant to make in the beginning i want to quick say it now these issues you're raising that we're talking about here today, they should matter to you whether you love Donald Trump, hate Donald Trump, love Joe Biden, who, whatever your views are politically. What we're watching is a breakdown of the rule of law in Washington. We're breaking down, we're watching the uh, destruction of just the presumption of an individual's right to be assumed innocent, the presumption of an individual's right to think as they wish to think. And which turns me to the next uh, little case I want to talk with you about. Uh, there was a gentleman who was arrested, uh, a capital writer uh, named Douglas Jensen, and Douglas Jensen was um, arrested. He was facing, he was in jail for a while, and he did this little um, at, at his uh, at, at hearing. He said, "Okay, I, I was completely duped by the." Um, uh, by the QAnon, the crazy conspiracy theorists. And I, I, I did believe the election was stolen. I was so wrong. I, I'm ser- so sorry I ever thought that. So the judge agreed to let him wait and have uh, home, and waited home for his trial, um, contingent on the thing, on, on the condition that he was not allowed to uh, be looking at the internet. He couldn't look at the internet. He couldn't connect with the internet and find out things he wanted to be knowing. So essentially, he was he got freed from being jailed, able to stay at home awaiting trial and was rearrested because they discovered that in he was in the garage of his home with his daughter's cell phone listening to the Mike Lindell symposium on election fraud. And because that symposium obviously is premised on the argument that the election was fraudulent, that was a, that, that he was rearrested. And I'm raising that to say the government has expanded the and and are defining their right to go after people based on what they believe rather than the conduct they engaged in and you make other references like that in your book that is a profound uh attack on on foundational freedom in america your thoughts
1: that's right that's just one example um i've also heard uh and, and i I wanna make clear uh, one of the parties most culpable for what's happening and that are judges on the DC District Court. And this includes Trump appointees from Judge Tim Kelly to Judge Dabney Friedrich, Judge Trevor McFadden, who has signed up on pretrial detention orders for at least a few um, uh, January 6th defendants all the way down to Reagan appointees. And in a few cases, these judges have sentenced Low people who have pleaded guilty to low-level misdemeanors, um, they have sentenced them to three years probation and specifically said three years so it covers the 2024 election season. So they will be on guard related to their own constitutionally protected political activity in the 2024 presidential campaign season. I mean, to say it so egregiously and have federal judges say that we're supposed to uphold not just the law, but primarily the constitution. And to have no qualms about saying that and punishing people's political, future political activity, um, is really something to behold. But these judges are as bad, as culpable, uh, as, as punitive as the prosecutors have been uh, all along for the past 15 months.
0: Absolutely. And on that point to what the, I, I mean, I am I did have a lengthy show segment on this a few weeks ago, but part of what you hear in commentary about in the sentencing is that they use expressions like, well, this person hasn't expressed remorse. And so it's one thing if you express, like you express remorse because you robbed a bank and you realize it was wrong, or you committed a violent act, they're talking about you're not expressing remorse for believing that the election was stolen. It's like you're not allowed to think that the election might have been stolen or that there was significant fraud that may have been outcome-changing. That's a that your thought about that is a basis of determining whether you should be bound over, um, you know, have to stay in jail until your trial comes, whether you get to go home, how long your sentence should be. I, I mean, these just seem to fly in the face of everything we believe about America. And I I, mean, I don't have anything further to say on that, but I, I find that among the most Upsetting things of all is that the government is now punishing what you think.
1: Yes, they mean FBI agents are on record asking uh, the accused what their thoughts were about the 2020 election. You have people going before judges uh, at behest of in this, in some cases, public defenders and court-appointed attorneys, because a lot of these people have never been in trouble before, let alone have the uh, wherewithal to spend six figures on a DC criminal defense attorney. So they're at the mercy of public defenders who of course uh, have nothing but contempt for their clients. So in some cases, you also have people writing these mea culpa's to the court um, acknowledging in, some, in a few cases their white privilege, and also telling the judge that they were wrong about what they believed about the 2020 election and in a one-man's case, saying out loud to this judge, "I now understand that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States." I mean, this is like Soviet-era, um, you know, propaganda. That you would, um, uh, what do they call it? What do they call it? struggle sessions? That you would not think would ever be happening in America, but yet, no one has. This, this is, this is forced upon these defendants not just by prosecutors, but by their own legal representation, and then accepted by these judges, it would be nice if one judge would say, hold on a second, you don't have to stand before me and declare who you think is the lawfully elected president of the uh, United States. It's not a crime to believe that he wasn't. You don't have to express your loyalty or fealty to him. This is way out of bounds in this court, and it's way out of bounds for the government to allow this, but no one is calling this out. Um, and so you still have defendants who are being forced to confess their, uh, their wrong think about the 2020 election.
0: Uh, it, it's very dangerous, and it sets a dangerous precedent because no one's challenging it. I actually thought there would be a significant legal challenge to the DHS bulletin saying that you may be a domestic terrorist if you challenge a 2020 election. I really thought there would be, and maybe there still will be, litigation challenging that because... You're being essentially told you you can't you can't think something the government has has said is wrong thing is not permissible. We have so many other topics. I I'm, your time is precious. I really want to make sure we get to them. Uh, one thing that was talked about a lot after January 6 was the um, Capitol police officer Brian Sicknick, who uh, died a couple of days after January 6 incident. And at the time, I remember this because I was getting emails from people who were saying this to me that you know he was beaten to death with a fire uh, extinguisher you know how can you defend these people and the real story we all now know is that Brian Sicknick sadly and I'm sorry for anyone's passing but he passed on because he had developed a blood clot which led to a stroke or several strokes and he passed on from natural causes and the DC medical examiner said he didn't have signs of trauma he didn't have a head injury and he didn't have signs of having inhaled something that was dangerous but I want to turn and talk because this ties really well, Sicknick and the FBI. The arrest of this gentleman Cater. K I forgot his first name. K-H-A-T-E-R Cater. Okay. Yeah. And you know that you wrote a great, great, great column talking about it. your column is called Um More Scandals Envelop the Scandalous FBI. But the FBI arrested this guy, Julian Cater, who was at January 6th, and um and he was um sorry to lose you oh shoot okay sorry my phone i don't know if i went out or not but anyway julian kidder was arrested by the fbi would you just quickly tell the story what happened to him and what and where we are now in that case <sighs>
1: So after the New York Times basically had to retract its story from January 8th that lied and said that Brian Sicknick was bludgeoned to death by Trump supporters using a fire extinguisher. Of course, that propelled all sorts of outrage. Brian Sicknick's remains were laid in state. Um, he was eulogized by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. He was visit, His remains were visited by Joe and Jill Biden, who gave this very dramatic appearance. You know, Joe Biden was shaking his head. Um, his remains were then transferred transported to Arlington National Cemetery. This all happened the weekend before the trial, the Senate trial began in Trump's second uh, impeachment effort. Well, turns out on February 12th, New York Times has to retract their story. There's no evidence that shows that Brian Sticknick was bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. Just oops, the, the reporters aren't fired. The editor's not fired. Every single news outlet who reported this as fact without double checking it themselves, it's still to this day, in some newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, you could still find an article that says Brian Sicknick was bludgeoned to death with fire extinguisher. Anyway, then they have to pivot to the next story. So the New York Times comes out, an allegation, Brian Sicknick was sprayed with chemical spraying. Perhaps he died from an allergic reaction to pepper spray or chemical spray. Therefore, two men are allegedly caught on some sort of recording spraying in the direction of Brian Sticknick. They are both arrested in March of 2021. Um, Julian Cater to this day remains in jail. He is actually accused of of spraying this little keychain of pepper spray. Again, items that he and his friend George Tanios brought because they thought they would confront BLM and Antifa. Allegedly use the spray. They are charged with assaulting and attacking a police officer three counts each person. Julian Cater is denied release by Judge Tom Hogan, a Reagan appointee. He is in the DC Gulag, where he has been since a year ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only did (coughs) Judge Hogan deny his bail, the DC Circuit Court refused to overturn Judge Hogan's pretrial detention order. And then last week, Julian Cater's uh, attorney and a group called the Press Coalition released his FBI interrogation that lasted two and a half hours. He was hauled off of a plane in New Jersey after he arrived home from Florida. The FBI made this big scene, hauls him into the field office, shackles him to a metal bar and wall where they proceed to interrogate him for two hours without an attorney, even though he says on numerous occasions, I would like my lawyer here. Um, So his lawyer actually just moved to have that interrogation suppressed. He still, I don't believe, has a trial date. But the only reason these two men, Julian Cater and George Tanios, as I talk about in my book, have been arrested and charged and one now languishing behind bars for over a year is to sustain the lie that Brian Sicknick was killed by Trump supporters on January 6th, which he absolutely was not, as you know, at the D.C. coroner. Uh, finally concluded, released his report in April of 2021 that, tragically, at the age of 42, Brian Sicknick died of a stroke caused by two blood clots.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, the other piece of that story, which is just really reflective of the FBI's conduct, uh, which is should be deeply troubling, again, no matter mm-hmm. where your political views are, no matter what, where you, you, you don't want a, con- a country like America to lose its rule of law. You don't want our society to live and go forward in a place where the government is behaving more and more tyrannically where they don't honor the requirements of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. So back to this uh, arrest of this uh, Julian Cater. So as you say, he was dragged off an airplane, very much, you know, make a public scene of him. But Mm -hmm. they also, uh, he signed a statement after two hours of questioning, which is what you're alluding to, uh, his lawyers now trying to uh, suppress. But he signed a confession and Really, because he didn't have a lawyer there, he's alarmed. First, he didn't even know. He kept asking in the beginning, "Why am I being arrested?" Because he had, uh, he may be one of the ones that had actually, um, no, maybe not. Anyway, he had, uh, he had not been aware he was going to be charged at all. Dragged off a plane and then signs a confession. These are things that that liber- liberals in the traditional use of that term. Mm -hmm. used to lament about the South, about the treatment of of black Americans, of anyone who was uh, powerless in society, that you don't let the federal government, state officials, anyone, corner them, question them, get them a sign of confession. I mean, it's behavior we should not want out of anybody, out of anybody. Okay, you made allusions uh, also to... The um, the jail conditions, and I, I can't go through a lot of it, but I thought maybe the story of Ryan Samsel, you tell that in your, your book too, Ryan Samsel, who was um, in jail uh, related to January 6th incident and uh, beaten by uh, officers. And if you <clears throat> wanted to talk a little bit about the condition of the jail in Washington, D.C., where most of January 6th defendants are being held.
1: So, um, there is a political prison in the United States of America. It is in the shadow of the US Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Right now, there are close to a little more than three dozen. January 6th defendants. It's part of the D.C. Department of Corrections facility that has been set aside to specifically house these detainees. There are reports of physical abuse, certainly emotional abuse. Many of them have been held in solitary confinement conditions for long periods of time, especially when they first were transported there. And then again, this winter under COVID restrictions. They can't see their defense attorneys. They certainly have not seen their family members. They also cannot see the discovery evidence against them because prison guards are withholding any digital transfer between their attorneys, trying to get this information to the detainees. In some instances, lawyers and defendant and detainees have complained um, that this material has been withheld for months so this is constitutional violations all over the place. There are also dozens of other men who are held uh, in prisons across the country. Ryan Samsel, I believe, is in his third facility. He was attacked by jail guards in two of those facilities. I believe that there are reports he lost vision in one of his eyes because his eye socket was broken. He did not get the medical attention that he needed. Um, And Ryan Samsell is the one, as your viewers probably might recall, is the first man who sort of breached the initial Police lines outside, far outside of the building, along the perimeter on the west side of the Capitol complex that day. After a man named Ray Epps whispered in his ear, uh, Ryan Simpson then tried to knock over several of this metal rack. Uh, with some others. And then uh, a few police officers fell down and then he he ran up the steps. Anyway, he has been detained now ever since January, held behind bars, abused, beaten, transferred, like I said, I think to his third prison facility. Uh, He still does not have a trial date. Um, and, uh, they, uh, government just, uh, added defendants to his case again. Like I explained, this is a trick by the justice department to delay trials. Um, and so they just did that again to, uh, to Ryan Samsel.
0: Truly, these are things, the stories that you're telling that we in America normally would hear about some third world country or some country that has, doesn't have a constitution, a bill of rights. that doesn't have a presumption of, you know, innocence that all the things we would say about other countries as terrible, we'd never want to live there, and they're happening here. And the reason it takes a book like yours, Julie Kelly, your book, January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. The reason this book is so vital is because it has story after story after story like this. It really brings... The, what occurred on January 6th in human terms and it really helps people see, you know, if they can do this, if the government can do this to people who a, in some cases are guilty of trespass and, and be guilty of mel- relatively minor crimes and especially, you, you make reference several times in your book to how many Americans are contrasting the way the January 6th defendants are being treated as compared with defendants who engaged in the rioting in America uh, that spawned by the George Floyd incident throughout American cities, we seem to have a double, uh, you know, a a parallel justice system. If you were part of the George Floyd protests, and even if you burned down buildings, I mean, there were murders, there were destruction of, of government property, and very few prosecutions, relatively speaking, versus in the January 6th incident, in which the government has continued to, I mean, isn't it of they've arrested like 800 people? What, what is the number they've arrested for January 6th?
1: We're close. They're close to 800 defendants right now. Uh, there was also a report by one of the reporters for NBC News who this is his beat. And um, it looks like there are going to be at least a few hundred more. I really think DOJ is trying to get to a thousand total defendants to use that to give that to the Democrats. I guess they think it's some sort of winning campaign slogan that they have a thousand January 6th defend- criminal defendants. Um, And so, yes, but right now we're, it's amazingly at over 800. Now, what's interesting is an FBI official testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee in January that about 240 Americans face federal criminal charges related to all of 2020 riots, which, of course, as you just noted, caused $2 billion in damages, multiple deaths. You still have areas of major cities that have not recovered from the looting and arson and, and, uh, and rioting that went on there. About 240 Americans face federal criminal charges. We now have more than three times as many American charged, Americans charged for federal crimes related to a four hour disturbance on January 6th, where they're still arresting people. And this Justice Department has completely forgotten about what happened in 2020. They're actively dropping cases actually.
0: They are. They are. The parallel justice system. And this really is what leads to great societal uh, dissent and division because right. people, yeah, they, they understand these facts and they're waiting for what they've always believed in. The American justice system is going to somehow write this, is going to somehow come to its senses, somehow begin to apply the you know blind uh, rule of law, blind justice and, and, and alarming because they're not. Uh, you also mentioned I want to uh, you had a great article out. and I don't, I don't I have a big stack in front of me, but it was basically about the idea that, you know, when we have, we're watching the way the left is treating this, this incident in January 6th, or it's an excuse to go after and the January 6th commission, is an excuse to dig into and find every possible supporter uh, related to maybe could be blamed in some way for January 6th. Uh, it causes people to recognize the left is really on a, it's more than a witch hunt. They are on a, we're going to use this to terrorize the American citizens. And yet you don't hear very much out of the conservative side saying, when we get power back, which assume we can have fair elections in 2022, which I you know, wouldn't bet the farm on. But if you can have fair elections in 2022, what should the GOP do to right this ship? Well, I think
1: they need to take the January 6th Select Committee. They need to overtake that, take all of the powers that it is now using and redirect that 180 degrees towards the people who are responsible for what happened on January 6th. Also, holding responsible someone like Matthew Graves, who is the US Attorney for the District of Columbia, who is overseeing and handling every single one of these criminal prosecutions. The DOJ now wants $34 million and 130 more prosecutors to handle all of these cases. The Republicans need to say, absolutely not. They need to cut off the funding source of what this criminal investigation is doing. They need to haul in members of the Capitol Police, the FBI, DC Metro Police, DC officials, including the head of the uh, Department of Homeland Security who are all uh, in on what happened that day. They need to release the 14,000 hours of surveillance video, show the American people what a public security camera system, closed circuit TV system captured on a public building paid for with public tax dollars that's not highly sensitive government material we have a right to see exactly what happened inside and outside that building that day also what happened to the pipe bombers where's that investigation we still that's completely been memory hold there are a lot of questions that this that a, a republican led and populated January 6th committee um, could be very busy in 2023 and 2024 uncovering uh, everything related to that date. Now will someone like Kevin McCarthy authorize that? Probably not, but that's why we need the base. Uh, this is an issue for the base. I know that Republican lawmakers who want to stay away from this issue are being forced to confront it because I've heard that directly from them. And so we need to keep pushing this, make sure that if Republicans take the House, even over the objections of Kevin McCarthy, there needs to be a select committee focused only on the events of January 6th and every government agency who wasn't just responsible for that day, but also this egregious, abusive, vengeful criminal prosecution of now 800 Americans in county.
0: I'm with you all the way. That was well said, and I couldn't agree more. And I really hope you can find that backbone in the Republican Party should they take the majority. I know we've expressed a little bit of concern about Senator McConnell. I I share your views exactly. Uh, Kevin McCarthy hasn't seemed very strong. I know the base is one. There are many issues like this in America. Fixing election integrity is one. The Mm. base has to push the party along. The power has to come from the base. That just leaves elected officials unable to move forward without listening to the base. I'll say quickly there was one good bit of news. Uh, the U- a US judge acquitted a, a, ju- a bench trial, uh, acquitted one gentleman, Matthew Martin, uh, recently because they said he had his defense was, yeah, I went in January 6th, but uh, inside the Capitol, but it seemed like they were waving me in. And this mm-hmm. is uh, to your point about the videotape that hasn't been released, it should be. Many, many people sitting behind, whether in, in solitary confinement, sitting in jail, they are waiting for that evidence to be released because the people, the, the Brady rule idea, just the basic fairness in America, people who are accused of crime actually have the right to see the evidence that's ex- potentially exculpatory for them. And I, I love that. I think it was McFadden. It was one of the yeah district judge McFadden mm-hmm. it, bench trial and just said not guilty, which I thought was great. It was a start. But I think there needs to be much pressure on the government to say, you can't prosecute these people and withhold the evidence they need to, uh, that would, in many cases, be exculpatory. I, I do want to hit, I, it's terrible, I know we're almost out of time. And mm-hmm. even though I grew up in New York and I can talk pretty fast, I can't get everything in I want to. But uh, you, uh, last thing, you had made reference to us, I w- wondered if you're, quickly, share your thoughts about it. It appears that President Biden is pressuring, uh, or would like to press, your Attorney General Garland Merrick Garland to go after Trump to find some basis to bring charges against President Trump. And so far, Merrick Garland hasn't done that. Uh, And I I mean, and we got the whole Hunter Biden thing in the background, but that's a a story from another day. Do you think it's likely that uh, Merrick Garland is going to bring charges based on the January 6th investigation against President Trump
1: I think it's very likely that Matthew Graves, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, will bring charges against Donald Trump. I feel like I sense that he is going to use the prosecution of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, their connection to Roger Stone, because the Oath Keepers provided security for Roger Stone that day. Um, And they are going to use that to build either the conspiracy case, or obstruction of an official proceeding, which is this felony I write about in my book that about 240 Americans have been charged with. It's a felony punishable by 20 years in jail. Liz Cheney already suggested that that committee might send a criminal referral to DOJ for obstruction of an official proceeding, but the committee is backing off on that and instead really applying pressure to Merrick Garland in just... one of those instances you can only imagine if this was a republican president putting pressure on a republic or a republican led committee putting pressure on a Republican attorney general to indict and or charge um, the Democratic predecessor. It's just uh, but but this is just lauded. You know, The New York Times reported it as uh, as though, you know, this is legit. They weren't condemning the idea that Joe Biden or Democrats are putting pressure on Merrick Garland. They think it's a great idea. And so I really don't think I think at the end of the day, the guy holding the bag is going to be Matthew Graves. And he will just defend it as the natural progression of his investigations into these two groups uh, led through people like Roger Stone and others who had security that day by these groups and to charge him with the same charges that they face.
0: You know, you made a great point, I believe, during our conversation, as well as in things that you've written um, about the idea that the American left doesn't have a lot to run on this fall. I mean, the, the country's a mess under Biden. Many people are upset about a long list of things. So maybe I think they think if we can just show victory through the January 6th committee, if we can show a number of prosecutions that led to convictions. I mean, they are just investigating, but they are bringing out information that lead to criminal prosecutions maybe that's enough. And the, the potential of even considering, uh, having Matthew Graves consider indicting a former president, I think that is radioactive. I think they've got to do a lot of thinking about, they, they may say there's a base that gets fired up on the Democrat side that loves it, but there'll be a lot of Americans just, uh, no matter what they thought about January 6th, the idea of indicting Trump over that will, will be, um, there'll be a very, very strong pushback among uh, conservatives around this country. Do you agree? I mean, that's a
1: Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why the committee backed off. I think they sense that this would even have political backlash for them.
0: Okay, Julie Kelly, again for our listeners. Actually, uh, Mr. Becker, do you have the picture of her book? You can quick put it up and show people. It is called January 6th How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Again, I'll tell you, my very fine friends, we were on vacation at the beach and I had brought this along because I had to read it and I thought I was going to be kind of laboring through it. It is so so well written, so logical, so well or, uh, organized, well written. Uh, and it, may, it really draw, pulls at your heartstrings because you realize that people involved in this, a lot of those everyday Americans who had absolutely no intention to engage in an insurrection or anything like that. And that the overcharging, the belligerence toward them by the FBI, wouldn't even get into the FBI. I, I, we couldn't get to everything. I'm sorry. I love talking about the FBI another time. Uh, but Julie Kelly, I just commend your book very strongly. Thank you for Thank joining you. us.
1: Debbie, thank you so much. Thanks for all the time and for promoting the book and for reading the book, more importantly. And I hope to talk to you again soon.
0: I do hope so too. Thank you so much. Uh, For our listeners, I'll tell you next week, on next Thursday, we have Xi Van Fleet joining us. You may recognize her name. She's a mom in Virginia. She actually grew up in China under Mao Zedong, and she is trying to wave the red flag and say what you're watching in America's schools and out of the anti American left today truly is. Very, very similar to Mao Zedong and his Cultural Revolution, his vicious repression of the rights of the people in China. Uh, she's a great, great guest. So come back next week, and also come back on Monday. I'll be back in studio, normal studio, normal schedule next week, Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. Thank you also very much for listening to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Voice upon voice, life. America, can we talk truth about America?